For those of us in the transplant world, organ donation doesn't seem mysterious, but today's guest puts organ donation at the center of each of her mystery novels. Since I'm going to write murder mysteries, I couldn't really kill somebody in good conscience and not use their organs for transplant. (laughs) Because why waste the kill, right? And it's all fiction, just for the record. That's Amy Peel, registered nurse, retired transplant coordinator, organ donation advocate, and author. I'm Sarah Jane Castro, Director of Marketing and Communications for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois, and your host on this episode of The Journey Continues. Hi, Amy. Why are you such a passionate advocate for organ donation and transplantation? Well, I actually started my career in Chicago and was very uh, active in the Kidney Foundation, by the way. Um, But I was a nurse, a transplant nurse at University of Chicago in 1977. uh, And that was when we had a variety of types of patients on our floor. And one of them was kidney transplant patients. And that's when I started to learn all about kidneys and kidney dialysis and kidney transplantation. And after I took care of some of those patients, I got hooked. It It got in my DNA and I was lucky to have a 35-year career uh, working in the world of organ and tissue donation and transplantation. Wonderful. How did you decide to work with transplant patients when you were first starting out in nursing? Well, I actually didn't know much about them, but the floor, the nursing floor, I-4 at University of Chicago where I worked, had a variety of types of different types of patients. Some were pretty sick and had to have really extensive abdominal surgery. And then there were the patients who got a kidney transplant. And I just thought, oh my goodness, this is so interesting, not only from a donor perspective, but also from an immunological perspective and a surgical perspective. So being in a teaching institution and having all these different particular um, types of clinical issues surrounding this one type of patient really drew my interest. And I must say for 35 years, I was never bored for a minute. I bet. It sounds like a fascinating career. So I know you worked as a transplant coordinator. What is a transplant coordinator? What do they do? Well, there's lots of different kinds. Um, When I started, I was both a clinical transplant coordinator, meaning I took care of patients who were getting ready to go on the list, working them up with the team, And then also while they're on the list, you make sure they're still healthy. So except for the fact that then that they needed to be on dialysis three times a week. And then I also then um, once we had a potential donor, I also was a procurement coordinator. So I wore two hats and the procurement coordinator is somebody who works very hard working with donor hospitals and preps them. So when a donor becomes available, they know what to do. And in Chicago back then, there were quite a few transplant programs, and each program had a certain number of hospitals. So I did both clinical, working directly with patient care and their families, as well as procurement, asking families for organ and tissue donation. And then if they said yes, I would orchestrate all the events that would culminate in the donation. So you've seen sort of both sides of it, the the waiting patient and the donor family side and worked with both. What does a patient need to do to get themselves ready for transplant? First of all, these patients usually are either getting close to having to be on dialysis, either hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis. 
And sometimes, if they're lucky, they can get what we call a preemptive kidney transplant, meaning that they had a living donor and that they were able to get a transplant before they actually go on dialysis. And my second book, Match, talks about that type of kidney transplant. They also then, if, and they work with directly with a transplant program, so they're referring nephrologists, the people who take care of them in the dialysis unit or beforehand, refer them to a transplant center, and then the patient gets worked up, meaning they want to make sure this patient is as healthy as they can be, obviously excluding the fact that their kidneys aren't working, so that when they get the call, they're healthy and they're ready to say, yes, I would like it. I would like that kidney. I will come in. So the patients really need to do the best they can to be compliant on all the restrictions, sadly, that they're under for dialysis. And many people don't understand if they don't hadn't been in our world. You know, people who are on dialysis, sometimes they can have like maybe one big glass of water a day, or they can chew ice because since their kidneys aren't working, they can't have a lot of fluid because the kidneys aren't filtering the fluid um, or able to excrete it as much as, say, a normal person's kidneys could. And they also can eat things like green leafy vegetables. Uh, at UC, I had a patient who had eaten a sweet potato pie and went into cardiac arrest because there's so much potassium in sweet potatoes. So patients who are on dialysis are on fluid restrictions, also dietary restrictions, um, and it's not always very fun for them, although I have to say many of them make the best of the situation. But the patients who are choosing transplant as an option really need to stay as healthy as they can. And if there's an, an incident that may happen, they need to let the transplant program know. Because the timing of when we actually procure or recover a kidney to the time that we need to put it in is not that long. So we want to make sure when we make that call to Susan Smith or whoever, that when they're there, they're ready to put their bag in the car and come to the hospital. It's almost like expecting a new baby, it sounds like. You've got to have that bag ready to go and can come at any moment. That's correct. That's correct. How does it feel to make that call to tell a waiting patient you have a kidney or another organ for them? Well, I have to tell you, Sarah Jane, that that was one of the highlights of my whole career because part of the, my career was talking to donor families who just lost a loved one and organizing the recovery, which is a tough time. But actually picking up the phone and calling, say, Sophie, it's Amy. We have a kidney for you. It's They're screaming. They're, ah, they're, they're responding. It's just like the best feeling you could ever imagine. And it it really was kind of the high level of satisfaction that balanced off the sadness in the, with the donor family that continued to keep me in the profession for so long because the gratification of getting to make that call, is it's, it's pretty cool, I have to say. That's got to feel incredible yeah. to give somebody that life-saving news. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to speak with the donor families and have that conversation. They've obviously just experienced a, a huge loss. What's that conversation like? Well, I have to say it's probably the most sacred time to be in anybody's space, emotional, physical space, because this is a family who everything was going fine. And then the call came and their son was either in a motorcycle accident or their loved one is a gunshot wound to the head. Certainly nothing any of us ever expect. 
And then um, they are taken care of. And of course, the primary reason they're in health, they go, go through the ER, the neuro ICU usually is because they're trying to save their lives. There might be some hope or there might not. And then if they're declared brain dead, which is death, the doctor will tell the family there's no hope. And they will then ask someone like myself to please come in and talk to the family about their options. And going into a family in that setting, there's no choice but to be 100% present, to listen, to see um, where they are, and then to talk to them if they did choose to donate the organs and tissues, what that might look like, and also giving them time and space to make the best decision for them and their loved ones, and knowing and ensuring that they know any decision they make is fine. There's no wrong decision, but I'm there to present one of the options that they have in this super sad and, like I said, very sacred time. That sounds like such a a powerful moment to share with a family, and it's got to be a hard conversation to have, but I'm sure for some people that feels uh, hopeful to be able to give another family a chance at a longer life by donating their loved one's organs. It is. And, and as you probably well know, we always encourage people to please make their decision before, God forbid, something happens to any of us. And we tell their loved ones because if the loved one didn't know that John or Hank or Mary wanted to be a donor, the first time they're going to hear the question would be from someone like myself. And if they'd had the discussion with their family um, ahead of time, just saying, this is what I want uh, to happen if something happens, it makes it easier for the family to go ahead and say yes, because they knew. Uh, and also people, as you know, sign their donor card um, and register wherever they are, either at their driver's license bureau or with the you know Donate Life or whoever they decide to you know sign up with. But there's a national registry. So... If we know that ahead of time, because you can search that and find out, we can say to the family, well, do you do know your son did sign his donor card. And so um, they may know that, they may not, but that then helps them to arrive at the best decision for themselves and their loved one. That makes a lot of sense. Talking about it seems so important. So your family knows your wishes before you end up you know, in a, a tragic situation. Can you talk a little bit about the criteria for an organ donor. I think a lot of folks probably are under the impression that once they sign that card, that's you live to be 110 and die quietly in your bed and you can still be an organ donor. But are there, um, what are the, the specifications for someone to be able to donate their organs once they're deceased? Well, that's a very good question and there's no one answer to it. Um, because times have changed, because we have a long wait list. I think nine people are being added, at least more than that, probably every day. And um, but a, one donor can provide nine or, organ and tissues uh, to people who are waiting. So the criteria vary. And, and as we progress in this world, and people are, some people are taking extremely good care of themselves, uh, and they're healthy. We could take organs from someone who's 70 if their blood work and everything 
you know, is in good shape. So it really, it also depends on what the disease is. Of course, if it's a, if it's a gunshot wound to the head or a subarachnoid head hemorrhage, but everything else is healthy, that's possible. We also have changed over the years. So now we can do uh, take HIV positive donors and put those organs into HIV positive patients. That was something that was foreboden long ago and hep- hepatitis C as well, positive hepatitis C pa- donors. So there's a lot of scrutiny when we get the call and the family suggests a lot of blood work is done, sometimes biopsies, sometimes some scans, just to make sure that those organs, regardless of the age of the donor, are in the best shape they can be before we would even proceed to the operating room because we want to make sure that uh, if we're going to take them that there's a high likelihood that we'll be able to use them for transplants. So it really depends these days because we have so many people waiting um, and we really have a shortage, as you probably know, uh, that it's just, it, it's we review donor by donor. So I think, I don't think we've had any 102 donors but um i I don't know that's going to happen but i i um i do know that we've taken a lot older donors in this day and age than they than i did when we were you know in the 1970s early 80s i know you do a lot of work in advocacy can you tell us a little bit about how you help spread the word for more uh the need for more organ donors well, since it's near and dear to my heart, um, any chance I get an t- opportunity to speak about it, I, I do. Uh, I speak to all different types of groups. Uh, a lot of times there's local groups like Kiwanis and, you know, just groups in a, a particular town, Rotary Clubs that all want to hear a little bit about transplant and organ donation. There's just so many ways to get the message out there. I don't know if you or your listeners know during um, the Rose Bowl, they have a beautiful float, Donate Life float every year. I got to go down once. Of course, they're all made of flowers and such, and they have a picture made of flowers of the donor. And then sitting next to that picture are the recipients. So that is a messaging that happens, um, which we want to get out to the whole world on TV and the Donate Life uh, float. They're just gorgeous. And of course, when I was down helping that one time, I just cried the whole time meeting donor families who find solace uh, in going and doing something like this and recipients in a way to thank their um, donor families. So there's so many different opportunities to get the word out. And anybody that knows me... (laughs) It'll come into conversation for sure, um, because I just feel it's really important. It also you have to remember, Sarah Jane, that most people don't like to talk about death, and if they talk about organ donation, that implies that they might consider they are going to die someday. I think we all are. We're best I can tell. I haven't heard any differently. So there's so many vehicles, and of course, then my books. Uh, I use those as opportunities to get them get the word out as well. My mysteries. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. What role does organ donation play in your novels? Initially, I'm a mystery writer. I've been a writer for quite a while and I wrote short stories and other things. And I retired from University of California, San Francisco in 2014, where I was director of clinical operations and we performed collectively 600 solid organ transplants a year, kidneys, livers, lungs, hearts, islet cells, pancreas. So I decided 
that when I retired, I would kill the people I didn't like at work. It's fiction. So <laughs> you can. And since I'm going to write murder mysteries, I couldn't really kill somebody in good conscience and not use their organs for transplant. <laughs> because why waste the kill, right? And it's all fiction, just for the record. But it was very cathartic because there were some people that were, you know, very... Very nice people, but as you know, in work, we have to be professional and appropriate. So the first book I wrote was called Cut, and I was not going to go with the theme. But when I started telling friends, and friends more than colleagues, the people who don't know our world, they'd say, oh, can you buy your way to the top of a liver transplant list? And I would look at them and thinking, well, no, but it was a common question that a lot of people outside our world had. So I thought, you know what? I better go with that. So I ended up, the first book cut that came out in 2017 was Can You Buy Your Way to the Top of a Liver Transplant List? Because I figured I might as well just, you know, address the elephant in the room. So, of course, I talk about organ donation in there, and I also give information about it on my website. And it was fun, and people started to read it, and the reviews were that it was a mystery with a mission and a side of humor, because I do have, I'm told, um, a sense of humor. And um, I also took a year class at Second City in Chicago, Players Workshop, Second City for a year, just to balance out the, you know, heavy dutiness of the day's work, night's work sometimes. So the second book, Match, is about kidney transplants and about dialysis and about preemptive kidney transplants. And there I did kill a politician, um, but, you know, it wasn't my fault. And um, we, I, I talk about a bit of the opioid crisis because even back then the opioid crisis is, was, is much worse today. But some we do get some donors from uh, people who had a drug overdose. So Match came out, and that was all around kidney transplants and the genesis of the Parrot Exchange. And I used my characters as a vehicle to explain some of it without hitting people over the head too much. And then my last third book that just came out in the trilogy, which is entitled Hold, is the real ultimate dream of all of us in transplant, which is what if you only had to take one pill to get a, you know, get your transplant and only one pill and you never have to take all the drugs and all the side effects wouldn't happen to you um, because that would be the dream. It's called tolerance. What if a person could it, it either uh, get, to- well, induce tolerance in a patient and have them tolerate the organ without all the medications. We're not there yet, but I decided who wouldn't want that to happen? And mostly big pharma and um, venture capitalists, because today the pharmaceutical industry and um, immunology is about a multi billion dollar industry. So all three books uh, have the seeds and information about organ donation and transplantation, and also just how scary and frustrating it is for people who have to wait, and what can they do? Could they get desperate to get an organ, and what can they do to get one? So I try to I make sure all my facts in the fictional mystery series are solid, and then I just have a little fun with the two characters, uh, two best friends, nurses, and put them on capers to work through these worlds that I've kind of made up. I love it. It sounds like a a great way to sort of dispel some of those myths and also have some fun and bring some levity to what can otherwise be a sort of tough subject and entertain you at the same time. So these books sound fascinating. Where can we find them? 
Well, I always like to give a little shout out to independent bookstores because we've sadly lost so many of them. Um, when people are able to just go online quickly and order a book, they don't understand. You've got some great independent bookstores in Illinois and in Chicago. Women's and Children's is one. And I always encourage people to go to their local bookstore. If you don't know what your local bookstore is, you, I have a little button on my website, amyspeel.com, and you just put your, it's called Indie Bound, and you put your um, zip code in there, and you'll find out where your local independent bookstore is. You can also order them at the library. Libraries have them. All three of the books came out in audio at the end of last year. So, and those are also available on any platform that uh, people get their audio books from. And also libraries have audio books. So there's a variety of places to get the books um, and read them, whatever your pleasure. Of course, they're e-books too, because some people prefer to use a Kindle um, or, you know, an iPad to read. So the, the they're available Wherever you get your books, I just always like to make sure people try to support their independent bookstores whenever they can. Absolutely. We love supporting small businesses. Is um, organ donation and transplantation your only health and wellness passion, or are you passionate about other aspects of health and wellness? Well, I am actually very passionate when I retire. I love to do yoga, um, but my knees kind of wore out. So when I retired, I went to the Chopra Center and I got certified to become a Hatha yoga teacher, but to do it in the chair because some people can't get out of the, get down off the floor and get back up. Now I can now because I got two healthy new knees that are doing great, but it wasn't really pretty watching me get up off the floor before that. <laughs> so what I learned is you can do chair yoga and you can do just the same poses you do on the mat, only in the chair. So I um, started, I was certified and started teaching that because there's a whole group of people that still love to move. They just aren't as agile. And then I was certified at UCSF to teach laughter yoga, which is, I didn't even know there was such a thing. But Yeah, I've never heard of it. I hadn't either. I actually went for my pre-op appointment for one of my knee replacements and the nurse practitioner who was there saying, oh, have you heard of laughter yoga? And I go, are you kidding? It really is laughter yoga? So fast forward, I learned about it, Got I got certified to lead it, and now I um, came up with this fun thing. Uh, last year, I was feeling like the world could just use something. I know I could, and I combined, I called our superintendents of schools, and I combined the laughter, stretch, and breath, so I call it LSB, laughter, stretch, and breath, and I do 30-minute classes for our educators, our principals, our superintendents, our teachers, our leadership teams. And it's kind of taken off because it's some breathing, it's some quiet, a little chuckle. Because laughter yoga, I've learned, your body doesn't know whether a joke is funny or not. Your brain does, and your brain will go, oh, I'm not laughing at that. That's <laughs> But if you just get your body laughing and you know, don't worry about what other people think, which I get people to do it really fast, and boy, we can't stop, your body loves that. And we got to do some work when I was learning it at the hospital with cancer patients and to see their faces after they laughed. It was just like this breath of fresh air. It was just beautiful. So it increases endorphins. It's also good for good breathing, you know, laughter yoga. So I made a combo platter. Actually, people seem to love it. And I always feel it's a great way to be of service. Uh, I love to do it and love people love to get it. So that's kind of one of my favorite things to do these days is to 
teach LSB. And there's on my website, there's a wellness advocacy button. And if you hit it, I have very short little like one minute, two minute videos. You can do hand yoga. You can do belly breathing. You can do laughter, little twist in the chair. Ideally, we should get out of our chair. But as you probably know, I, I know sometimes I'm not as good as standing up when you're supposed to, you know, every 20 minutes or an hour. So that's a, become a, a passion of mine. And um, yeah, so you might see me in my car laughing on the way to teaching laughter yoga. <laughs> it sounds like both of laughter yoga and chair yoga would be good options for someone who's maybe on dialysis or who has some issues with mobility as part of a chronic illness as well. Great. Yeah, absolutely great uh, comment. And it, you can do just little things to, to take care of your body, whether it is your fingers, because we're all on our phones or computers or driving to your shoulders and your back. So there are lots of fun, simple things that nurture your body, mind and spirit that don't. It's not like a pretzel because some people hear the word yoga, which is why I call it laughter, stretch, and breath, and go, oh boy, I got to do a headstand or a handstand. Oh no, I don't want to, I can't do that. And no, no, we're not doing those things. So I always try to encourage people to connect with their breath and, you know, shrug their shoulders, even if they don't do anything else but shrug their shoulders back and forward. Yeah, just kind of loosen up a little bit. That sounds. Like we could all use that, especially oh, yeah. if you're sitting at a desk or in a dialysis chair, wherever you are. Oh, yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Amy. I, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I can I concur that you do have a sense of humor. I've found myself chuckling a lot in our, in our conversation. And uh, I just so appreciate your your outlook on things and sort of this holistic view of health and treating not just the body but also the mind and the spirit and and bringing some levity and some humor into it too I so I've really enjoyed speaking with you today thank you so much for being on the journey continues thanks Sarah Jane thank you for having me there are currently over 3,800 people waiting for organs in Illinois alone 3,300 of them are waiting for kidneys you could help someone's journey continue by registering to be an organ donor or investigating living donation. To learn more about organ donation or transplantation, visit our website at nkfi.org or donatelifeillinois.org. I'm Sarah Jane Castro, and this is The Journey Continues. Prevention is a large part of our mission at NKFI. Here's Dr. Melissa Prest with a health and nutrition tip. Here's today's nutrition tip about vitamin D. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, meaning it's stored in fat in the body. You may have heard vitamin D called the sunshine vitamin because we can get it from exposure to the sun, but we can also get vitamin D from the foods that we eat. The best sources of vitamin D are fatty fish like salmon and tuna and foods fortified with vitamin D like milk. Vitamin D is also present in small amounts in beef liver, cheese, egg yolks, and mushrooms. Vitamin D plays many roles in the body, including promoting calcium absorption in the gut and maintaining enough blood calcium and phosphate concentrations to allow for normal bone development. Without enough vitamin D, bones may become thin, brittle, and misshaped. Calcium plus vitamin D helps to protect older adults from osteoporosis, which is a disease that causes bones to become weak and brittle, making them easy to break. Many people are at risk for vitamin D deficiency, including people living with chronic kidney disease. 
This is because your kidneys play an important role in how your body activates vitamin D from sun exposure and the foods we eat. If your kidneys are not healthy, then you may have low levels of vitamin D in your blood. It's important to have your vitamin D levels checked by your healthcare provider and be treated if they are low. With today's nutrition tip, I'm Melissa Press, a registered dietitian nutritionist and the foundation dietitian for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois. The Journey Continues is brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois and sponsored by Donate Life Illinois. To learn more about kidney disease and living donation, visit www.nkfi.org. To register to become an eye, tissue, and organ donor, visit lifegoeson.com. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe to and leave a review for The Journey Continues in Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. This podcast is produced by Rivet. To hear more great podcasts, visit rivet360.com.